0: Amy Carroll.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. As a communication coach, trainer, speaker, and author, I'm delighted to be your host and excited to bring you insights and ideas to help you solve your communication conundrums. This is the 25th episode of my show, Partner Up with Amy Carroll. If you want to find out more about me or what the show is about, feel free to listen to previous episodes on my website, carolcoaching.com. Or the voiceamerica.com business channel. Be sure to download the app or feel free to listen on your favorite podcast app. If you missed last week's show, I had a delightful conversation with Heather Carnsley, an adjunct professor of leadership at IMD Business School in Switzerland. Among other things, we discussed Heather's research, which focuses on the development of self awareness, authenticity, and the role of metaphor in breakthrough thinking and creativity. Be sure to check out the episode from February 12th. Today, my guest is Dr. Rima Azam. Welcome, Rima.
2: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here today.
1: Yeah. And I think (laughs) I said I I made a creative version of your last name. As I I added like an S, Azam. Said
2: it perfectly. Thank you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not an easy name. (laughs) It's to me, you know, it's like Italian where there's, Phonetically, everything gets pronounced, so it's not as hard yes. as some names I've come across. Yeah,
2: and it means welcome.
1: Oh, it, I didn't know that yeah. in Arabic. Welcome,
2: yes, or somebody who likes to invite people and welcome them into their home,
1: or so. so somebody, just say Azam when they.
2: Well, I mean, it's it's a meaning. It, it kind of changes when you use it in sentences. But it also a second meaning is willpower. Somebody who has a strong willpower. So it's kind of fun to have those little stories behind our names.
1: How would you welcome someone using it in a phrase in Arabic?
2: I mean, the traditional is marhaba, ahlam is kind of how we do it informally because the Arabic language, you have both the formal and the informal, the classical versus the um, sort of colloquial. So, Mm -hmm. the only time we use formal is in broadcasting or formal sort of uh, government businesses, but Mm -hmm. beginning to dwindle away. So, it's mostly colloquial.
1: It makes me think of uh, Swiss German and High German. I wonder if that's similar.
2: It's somehow. I mean, I think usually I tell people it's sort of akin to uh, classical Shakespearean English versus the modern uh, sort of language of the uh, modern English language.
1: Okay, that's a comparison Uh, I can hold on to. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Rima, give me a moment. I want to give the listeners some background on you so they know um, a bit more about you before we get, jump into this juicy conversation. So, Rima is a trained psychologist, educator, and coach. She was born in the U.S. to a Palestinian father, a mother born in Iraq to a family from Turkey who was raised in Lebanon. So, now, Rima, I understand why you call yourself a Middle Eastern cocktail. Yep. <laughs> And because of all that, uh, understandably, Rima grew up on three different continents in Asia, in Europe, and America, uh, or, or lived in different continents, growing up mostly in Lebanon through part of the Civil War. And Rima's education, mostly uh, her high school and university was in the UK. Then she moved to the US in the DC area around the age of 25 to pursue, not one, two master's degree. And a doctorate in New York City,
2: picking them up along the way. <laughs> okay, all right, good. I'm glad they weren't all
1: simultaneous. <laughs> so the doctorate is in special education. The one of the masters is in neuroscience and education, and the second master's in is in educational psychology. And also, her she has a certifi- certification, no, a certificate. That's the right word in coaching from Coach You which is where I got my coaching certificate. Oh, wow. Small yeah. world, huh? <laughs> yeah. Back in 90s, I started in 97. And wow. I think, I, yeah, a couple of years, a couple of years later, I, I finally completed it.
2: That's impressive. And a couple of years, that's great. It took me a lot longer than that. Oh, did it? Oh,
1: thank you for saying that. No, I, oh, yeah, I, yeah I, I, I had to, I was working full time. So, it, yeah, it took my time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
1: So something about Rima, no surprise, traveling is in her DNA. Now you say you started at the age of one. Are you, someone uh, took you on an airplane somewhere? Or?
2: Well, my parents had <clears throat> my dad wrapped up his uh, training, and they decided before going back to Lebanon that they would do a tour of America. So here I am, baby carried at their ar- arm in their arms, and they traveled throughout the U.S. And I have pictures that show me everywhere across <laughs> the U.S. So. <sighs> I get I've Ka- been there,
1: just don't remember it.
2: <laughs> they kept telling me, when do you want to go to the U.S.? Don't you want to visit? I said, but I thought you took me all around.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's just to be the joke, yeah.
1: And it includes the travel 53 different countries, working in 11 different countries, most of them in the Middle East. And no surprise, she speaks three languages fluently, Arabic, French, and English. Oh, and I love this one. Listen up, leaders, listeners. She learned Portuguese because she got a contract to, to work in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cuckoo brain, huh? <laughs> when I get a contract, I buy a new pair of shoes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love languages.
1: <laughs> wow, that is impressive. Because yeah. I, I will share with you, when I was studying French, in I started in high school, mm-hmm. kind of forgot it, had to restart again in college. And my college boyfriend, who was a sweetheart, said to me, honey, you have so much trouble with English. Why are you studying (laughs) French? Oh, that is so funny. I know, and it's very true. I'm often very creative with my English. And is it true that you're now studying and learning Italian on top of all that? Yes, I am. What's your motivation for learning Italian?
2: Well, my my husband is of Italian origin. Mm. He recently got a passport, Italian passport. Uh, I mean, he was born in the US, he's an American citizen, acquired his Italian. And I thought, and for me to get the Italian passport as his spouse, I have to be fluent in Italian. And really, I actually was 16 years old when I just was fascinated by Italian, wanted to learn it, started on my own. And when I landed in England, the school I was at wanted me to learn another language. They did not accept Arabic as the third language. So I picked up Italian.
1: Uh-huh. So I guess it
2: was always some, a language that I was attracted to. And now I had motivation yeah. to learn it more formally.
1: Yeah, I was very attracted to Italian. That was the language I wanted to learn in, in the school. I was also very attracted to Italian men. So I think there might have been some connection there. Uh-huh. Um, you know, <laughs> whatever it takes. So yeah. unfortunately, my school, my high school didn't offer Italian. So that's why I ended up with French.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. French is harder, though.
1: Thank you for saying that. (laughs) So here's my question for you. Based so now that listeners have a good sense of your background, I'd like to spend some time talking about it and how it's impacted who you are. And so my first question for you, what have you learned about yourself, about human nature, as a result of living in all these different cultures and learning these different languages?
2: I think for me, at the core of it was having a clear sense of self, uh, being anchored and rooted in a culture that kind of gives you a sense of identity, and then being open and curious about learning about other cultures and having the luxury in a way to pick and choose what you like about different cultures and incorporate them into who you are. I think that is a gift that, that, that sort of the world offers us.
1: The, so the main cultures would, you, would be for UK, Lebanon, US. Is that accurate? I would say the, the the core
2: one is the Middle East, the Lebanon one. Okay. Because that's where I grew up and was raised. And so that's the core. The others were additional ones that I acquired as I went along.
1: Okay. So let's start with, the, with Lebanon. What were some of the qualities from that culture that you particularly appreciated and wanted to carry with you? So I
2: would say um, the Lebanese have a joie de vivre that's beautiful, that engagement with life, uh, knowing how to live and live well through social engagement, through cultural activities, through travel. There's that passion for life and Mm. good food and party. (laughs) I love that. And there's a sense of community. There's a sense of truly belonging. And because it's a small community, everybody knows everyone. Mm -hmm. So on the plus side, you feel like you are seen, you matter, you are a known uh, quantity and entity in in the fullness of who you are versus uh, an anonymous individual on this planet. Mm. And so that strong sense of community and support and family ties are so powerful. And they really, I feel they anchor, uh, they anchored me emotionally, mentally, uh, physically. It feels like you've got a solid base, a solid platform to work from.
1: And that speaks to me when I think about, and you, I'm sure you know this already, the, one of the basic human needs is the sense of belonging. And that's what yes. you described from yeah. that kind of community. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So that's,
2: uh, that aspect is so powerful. And it still is very much part of who I am. Wherever I go, it's so entrenched in who I am and how I engage with people. Um, so what's a
1: specific example of how you bring that into your life on a
2: daily basis? Social life, you know, friends, always Mm. surrounded with friends, having an Mm -hmm. open home, a gathering place. So, uh, whenever we have an outing or whatever, it starts with, hey, come over to the house, we'll hang up for a bit and then go out or we go out and then come back home. So, home is a, it's more than a house, it's a home. It's Mm. sort of where you gather, where you share memories, where you have fun, where you deal with every aspect of life, where you kind of support each other in kind of hard times, easy times, fun times. So Mm. there's that kind of surrounding oneself and being with the community of people you love. And in fact, when I moved to the U.S., the first thing I... So let me back up a second. When I was a kid, my parents used to tease me whenever they wanted to mess around with me, they'd say, Yankee, go home. And I'd say, if I'm to go home, I'm dragging you with me. (laughs) I moved to the US in 85, 86. They were all here in Washington, DC.
1: You brought them them over. Fantastic. Yeah,
2: Yeah. so it's having that sort of sense of uh, bringing my mini community here. And that sort of gives me, it always gave me that space of uh, being able to then feel Free to explore. It's almost like yeah. a little child. Yes, who knows, mommy is nearby. I'm safe, and therefore I can turn my attention to the world out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. which is
2: really beautiful. I mean, that's kind of a, a real gift. That I, I mm. think of it as a, as a precious gift.
1: So that that's a very powerful example from the Lebanese culture. Let's move to the UK. What in from the UK culture are qualities that you um, maintain and and have brought with you?
2: So I was made aware by my father before we went to England and said, Rima, in Lebanon, we tend to be very bombastic. We speak loudly. We're full of passion. In England, people are very polite, very quiet. You need to bring the volume of your voice down and speak (laughs) softly. That gave me the trigger of awareness of how Mm. I needed to observe and be a little bit more cognizant of how things are different from where I was raised. Mm -hmm. This was my first exposure living in a place. I mean, travel, you go in as a tourist, it's different. right? Observation led me to sort of notice how polite people were, how modest they were, Mm. um, that kind of gentleness. And that really appealed to me. And I thought, "Mm, I really love that about the British. And so I began to try and figure out a way of um, making that part of who I am, took a while to bring that volume down. <laughs> <laughs> the mod- and whenever I get excited, volume goes up. And uh-huh. that is me. I don't think I'll ever be able to fully change that. But it sort of modulates depending. And mm-hmm. I kind of learned to almost mirror my environment as a, as a strategy to connect to the world I'm in mm. through so, observation mirror.
1: So I'm hearing a high level of adaptability that you developed. Yes. Felt. Adaptability,
2: while always being cognizant of what is authentically me. So I, I would not. I, if something doesn't feel right for me, I wouldn't pick it up. I wouldn't so that's do it. an
1: that being authentic. That's an important thing. I want to get into that a little bit later. So let's remember and hold on to that. Okay. Uh, so the third uh, culture. Then you at twenty five, you moved to the U S. What about the U S. culture? Do you did you say, oh, these are things I really want to hold on to?
2: The sense of Creativity, openness, um, being able to be who you want to be. Uh, Professionally, it was a fabulous world to to, uh, live in and work in because you're given permission to reinvent yourself. I grew up in a world where you were shaped by your training. You were only uh, an expert in your own area of training Whereas in the U.S., people talk about expertise based on experience as well, that this was a legitimate form of training and exposure. And therefore, if you have experience in something, even though you were not trained in it, you can claim expertise. And I struggled with that so much. As much as I loved that concept, I really had a hard time overcoming it. And still to this day, I would say I have experience in and never say expertise. I still there's certain parts where that I humbleness
1: kind of kicks in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. And I think it's because it aligns more with who I am, and I have a sense of um, yes, I love the openness, but it's still contained within a narrower uh, boundary.
1: Yeah, if you like. I want to be provocative for a moment here, mm-hmm. if I may. Of course. Thanks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the challenge. I, we don't know each other that well, so I think I should warn you first. <laughs> uh-uh. I love challenges. <laughs> okay, so here here's a question. When you say that you are okay to say I have experience and not expertise, even if there's a likelihood that you truly have the expertise, do you think, aside from the humbleness culture that influence you, influences you, do you think there's also a part of it? Um, because I think globally, if we stereotype, mm-hmm. it's You know, for a woman, it's much more precarious to claim expertise because Mm. she's likely to get more likely to get criticized or put down for it by both men and women.
2: Yeah, interesting. Not so much for me. I grew up, even though I grew up in the Middle East, forgive me, uh, my father was very progressive in many ways. And one of his general sort of repeated statements were, um, I want you to get a good education. Mm. I want you to be able to stand on your own two feet. So if you happen to marry somebody you don't like, you can kick him and you can take care of yourself.
1: Wow.
2: Period. I also came from a family where my grandfather on my mother's side used to drive my aunt and my uncle across the desert to Lebanon to put, in, put them at school so that they can be... Uh, educated, can take care of themselves, and not depend on anyone. And one of my aunts was one of four women uh, to train as a doctor in the Middle East at that time. My grandmother on my mother's side had a high school degree. Mm-hmm. So we came from a, a rich background of belief in education and wow. in being independent and in standing for our, um, you know, ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad used to always say, um, if you believe in something strongly – it doesn't matter what the rest of the world believes in. Stand up, hold your head high, and state your vo- you know, make your voice heard. And so I always grew up with that concept. So to me, it's like I dismiss or don't even respond to the pressures that come from outside around who wow. I am and what I can do or mm. cannot
1: do. You know, for me, I had something similar. My mom's philosophy was failure is an opportunity to learn something. Yeah. And I just grew up with it. I was just like, oh, that's yeah, cool. Yeah. And and I didn't, and it wasn't until years later that I came to appreciate, it. I was dating a Swiss guy and I was starting my own business and he was okay. sitting back watching me and he was horrified. He's like, Amy, you, you, you're, you're not concerned if you're going to fail. You, you just say yes to things and it might fail. And I thought about that. I was like, mm, yeah, that's true. He said, if I embark on something, I'm going to make sure that, that there's no chance I'm going to fail. And if there's a chance I'm going to fail, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure it's mitigated or I won't yeah, agree to it. And, yep. I, and it was fascinating to have that awareness. And I thought about where did that come from? So that whole story is to ask you, you know, you grew up with that philosophy of mm-hmm. your fathers. At what point or was there a point that you stood back and went, wow. How awesome that I got that education, that teaching, that attitude um, as a child. Was there an aha moment for you to realize that that was pretty significant? Hmm. I'm not sure that there was a specific time. It's almost
2: like it was built in because by comparison, it's just growing up in an environment where other fathers were not like that. Uh, Girls were sort of seen as in many other places secondary the boy gets I mean in Lebanon at the time when I was growing up the boy was the one who was focused on the boy sure. gets to get the education the boy gets to lead the, the family business etc and so it was always all around me the contrast was always there
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so
2: I was all. Oh, I, I mean I can't say you I was always, always aware there was a sense yeah. of awareness but I don't know that there was this particular point got it that triggered it
1: yeah because you were so young you grew yeah. up with it for so long I see yeah. So I want to ask you, knowing that you speak four, three and a half, (laughs) four and a half languages, um, how did you, how did growing up in a trilingual environment impact your way of being in the world? Um, I guess my world was never
2: anchored in any one uh, purest culture. Mm-hmm. I have this perception, and I don't know if it's true or not, it's just a perception that if one grows monolingual in their in one's own country, and it's predominantly monolingual, as in the U.S. or the U.K. or France, that there's a narrower sort of um, scope of how you look at the world initially growing mm-hmm. up. Um, our exposure was between kind of having access to different languages gave me access to different cultures. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a uh, studying in a private school that was a bilingual French-Arabic school. Uh, the, we were exposed to the French culture through the language. We studied French history, French geography, et cetera. And so there was always that sort of wider world that we were exposed to. Um, American culture, the movies, um, the English language. We had the British as well as the American access to it. So it's always been a blend. And in fact, what's ironic, and I call it mental laziness, whenever we talk to each other as friends in Lebanon, single sentence, three languages kick in, in the same sentence. My dad used to challenge us and say, I bet you can't stick to one language for one (laughs) sentence. He was right.
1: I couldn't. Wow, that's fascinating. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So the brain begins to kind of uh, think differently. You, you begin to, it's almost like language is only a mechanism to get your thoughts through and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what language you use. Yeah. It's whatever word pops up in whatever language just comes up. That's it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's true that there are certain words in certain languages that just fit better, make more sense, easier to yeah. explain the concept. Yeah, yeah. I get it. You describe yourself as a reformed control freak. How did you transform this?
2: Okay. Full disclosure and honesty, work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> um, I became more and more aware of my control freak character, um, probably in my um, as I began to work um, professionally, mm. where because I tend to be highly motivated, task-oriented, I like to get things done, very practical on some level, um, I needed things to be done in a certain way and it needed to be my way. And so as I began to work, you know, as a, when you report to others, it's, you can live in that universe more easily. It's when Mm -hmm. I began to have direct reports that I began to become very aware of my need to have things done my way and feeling, and I'm somebody who always, always disliked being restricted. I, my own personal space and freedom is so important That just because I want to treat people the way I like to be treated, that became the motivator. So I started noticing how I would try to guide people.
1: Mm. And I
2: needed to change that.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So I began to uh, figure out, well, what can I do to get myself to be less of a controlling person? Okay. Step one, manage my control need. And I still think I'm in that stage up to a a point. So if I wanted something done by a certain point, I would kind of create the cushion, the different layers of when, like what do I need to do if it all fails and I need to fix it? How much time do I have? So I try to create a space where I get people to do their own thing, let them experience it, fail or succeed their own way, then step in, and provide the support as needed along the way, if they ask for it or afterwards.
1: So what you, so if I hear you correctly is um, you, one, you're aware that you have this tendency mm-hmm. to, when you're managing leading others, you purposely create a, a cushion for yourself yeah. mm-hmm. of where, you know, that if you cross pe- beyond that, then it, you're going to start to get the point where you're jittery and, you know, Correct. wanting to do it in a certain time frame or, your way. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't necessarily inform them of it, that you're doing that so that you can allow them.
2: You do. I do say if you can get it done. So what I do, I'm very transparent. And I tell people, I want you to be able to do it your way. Please feel free to come and check in with me if you need any help. I need to let you do it your own way because there are more than one way of doing things. And I want to honor that. But know that by this date, if it's not done or if it's not done to the level that we need it to be, we can either work together or I'll take over and do it. So I open that space so they also feel they have a safety net. And it doesn't come with judgment. It comes with this is a learning opportunity. Right.
1: Run with it. Uh Uh-huh. Beautiful. And now this might be related. Being, um, You say that you're very... Well, actually, to me, this is the opposite. This is why I find this so fascinating. You say you're comfortable with the unknown being in limbo. Mm -hmm. And this is not typical for many people. No, true. Um, How did you achieve this? I think
2: it's partly personality and partly perception. I strongly believe in um, attitude. It's what you bring to the session. My attitude when I get into a limbo state, I have a choice of how I would look at it. And the way I see it is, Hmm, great opportunity, the unknown, the unplanned. I might discover new things I may not otherwise sort of uh, have a chance to discover. So I sit there and sit in that space and let it happen to me and with me instead of resisting it. That is easy when it's something that's not uh, emotionally challenging or physically challenging uh, that scares me. If it doesn't have the fear element to it, I'm perfectly fine. And I become Mm. more creative. Mm -hmm. If there's a fear element, then I kind of hunker down and kind of say, okay, let's run out the clock. (laughs) Just hang in there, be resilient. It has to come to an end. And that's how I keep myself going if the limbo is uncomfortable.
1: Wow, that's very powerful. So you ride that wave knowing. And in a way, I think I hear is that you're giving yourself empathy of saying, of course, it's going to feel uncomfortable. I'm in limbo. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh, that's it's when cool.
2: it when there's the emotional threat. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So listen, we're going to take a break in a moment, and when we come back, Rima, I would love for you to share the uh, first time you had your uh, your first aha moment, awareness, and your ability to choose how you want to be in the world. Um, when we come back from, and that's when we come back from the break. Though for listeners, if you want to connect with Rima, you can email her with. This the following email intoitcoaching@gmail.com, at gmail.com and that's in the number two it it coaching at gmail.com or check out her website in www.intuitcoaching.com. So we'll he'll be more hear more from Rima shortly. Stay tuned because you're listening to partner up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel
3: become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward
0: slash voice America. do you have colleagues family members or neighbors that just drive you crazy sometimes do you occasionally find yourself feeling disrespected mistreated or annoyed by others as a no-nonsense communication coach trainer speaker and author amy carroll may have a solution for you for over 35 years Amy has studied status and power dynamics, what sabotages relationships, results, and how to get desired outcomes in business and personal interactions. Make your partner look good is a philosophy from improvisational theater, as well as Amy's favorite mantra. For the last 20 years, she has been using her superhero powers to inspire individuals and multinationals around the globe to transform their communication and tap into their own partner powers. With concrete behavior changes in voice, body language, words, and attitude, Amy shows clients what to keep and what to change to get more of what you want more often with less hassle. Visit carolcoaching.com today. That's C-A-R-R-O-L-L coaching.com.
4: The path to leadership excellence begins here. The Voice America Live Events channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events The pace of change in the world is increasing exponentially and shows no signs of slowing down. Leadership is evolving and requires more and more innovative leaders to keep up. Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf, features interviews with global business leaders, thought leaders, and academics in a wide range of industries. Proven concepts and tools may be applied to build your organization and deliver sustainable success. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Business.
0: You are listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. We want participation from you. Feel free to send an email to amy at carolcoaching.com. Now, back to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Here again is Amy.
1: Welcome back to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. My guest today is Dr. Rima Azam, and she's a trained psychologist, educator, and coach. So we've been talking a lot Rima, about your background and how it's formed you to be the person you are today. Uh, When you and I talked, you mentioned something about having an insight at the age of 11. I'd love for you to share that story.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I was 11 years old and I don't remember what happened, but I remember getting so upset and angry at my older sister. We got into a fight and I was so mad at her that I just picked up a bunch of her 45 vinyls Stacked okay, that's, up.
1: that's records for people who don't know what vinyls that's are. Right. Okay,
2: like Ancient history, 45 vinyls, stacked them up and held a hammer and smashed them. I was so angry and I had no, well, reflecting back as an adult, I recognized that I had no tools to manage my anger or control it or figure out how to kind of uh, dissipate or, or work with it. So it had to exit my body. I just had to release it and that mm. was how I released it. And as soon as I did that and I watched the scene of what I had done, I was horrified. I was like, oh, I don't like what I've done and I don't want to be that person. Mm. That was my aha. And from that point forward, I became very... Let bright. me mm-hmm.
1: check. When you say, I don't like what I've done, I don't like that person, it it was more like that. It's not that you did this thing that you, um, because you were still angry at your sister, I imagine. It was more like the idea that you could lose control to that level?
2: Yes. It's sort of it just in that moment, the visual of seeing those broken records and the fact that I did not control myself and mm-hmm. that I uh, didn't know how to deal with it. And what how it appeared to me was like, oh my God, that's ugly. That is not something that I want to do or want to be. I don't mm-hmm. want to be in that kind of state. So mm-hmm. I think that was the time when I wanted, and when I made kind of a, a child promised to myself that I was going to work on who I wanted to be. I wanted to choose how, who I wanted to be, and that wow. was my starting point of self-development. I think.
1: Oh, you, as I'm listening to the story, I realize mm-hmm. that I had a similar experience, except uh-huh. it happened much later though it did also involve my older sister. Aren't <laughs> older sisters great? Yeah, I got to tell you. Luckily for her, it had nothing to do with any of her 45 vinyls. <laughs> uh, yeah, she lucked out. <laughs> yes, yeah, she did. In this case, I used to go to her and say, oh, Pat, you know, I've got, there's a 10-year age gap. And so mm. I was starting out at 15, 16, 17 years old. And I would have a job after job. I'd have a difficult boss. And I complain to her. And she'd always be supportive and empathic. Well, Rima, about the eighth time I called her, she's like, Amy, honey, nobody has that kind of trouble. <laughs> nobody has so many bad bosses in a row. No, nobody has that much bad luck as you do. I'm like, really? <laughs> so that was like a huge aha to realize that I was the common denominator. And, yeah. and so there was a, a combination of excitement that I, that um, of a, this awareness meant that I could change something, except also fear and, and anxiety like, I don't know what to do and I, I don't know how to fix it. Um, I don't know what to fix. All I know is that I want to fix whatever this thing is. Yeah. Um, luckily, and this is, you know, we're going to be talking about coaching in a moment. This is such a powerful insight for coaches they don't always have to know the how to get, you know, the results they want right away. Um, There's so, an
2: important yeah. piece here for me when, as you're talking about this, and I think uh, in my case, it was self-awareness coming from within. And in your case, it was observation that was shared with you from the outside. And I find that for me, when f- somebody f- finds their own uh, self-awareness they it's a choice they make and therefore it's more it's easier to uh, to accept and work with than when it is sort of presented from the outside it's it sort of little takes a little bit the edge of the fear I think at least for me
1: yeah luckily my sister didn't present it in a, a way in an ultimatum because it didn't really impact her she was just there always supporting me she so she held the mirror up and mm-hmm. and I think maybe earlier in my a few a years earlier I maybe wouldn't have been ready for it I would have resisted it mm-hmm. though it uh, happily still worked in a way yeah. that gave me that motivation to change without that fear because yeah. it was
2: a gentle sort of mirror without judgment but kind supportive of notice yes
1: yeah. yeah yeah definitely yeah that's beautiful so that's a really interesting point that you that you make because there's been other times in my life where I see, you know, I came to the conclusion myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I don't know if this is true for you and your coaching. I have coachees mm-hmm. who, you know, I give because I act as my sister acted to me, right? And I'll hold the mirror up to them and I give them some bad yeah. news. I'm like, okay, you're coming across as a jerk. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know you might not mean it, you know, and I use playfulness and everything. so. Yeah. They're able to hear it, and they're and they say, "Oh my gosh, my husband's been telling me that for years, or my you know partner, my girlfriend." Yeah. And I think if we could only be willing to listen to our partners, you know, they'd people would save a lot of money on coaching. This is something I said <laughs> in an episode recently. You know, though yeah. it's it's one of the for whatever reason our egos there is this resistance to listening to our partners sometimes.
2: Yeah. yeah the emotional package that comes along. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You have said to me that you look to others for models. What are examples of this?
2: So again, around the age of 11 is when I became aware of the power of observation and models. I have a childhood friend of mine who was always gregarious, full of joy, full of laughter. And I remember watching her and thinking, oh, how beautiful to be in that state. Um, And I wanted to be more like her. So, that was kind of one example. Um, I've always found myself observing people and always looking to see what do I like about who they are or what they do or how they act or how they think that I could make as part of who I am. So, it's always been part of how I look at uh, engagement with people and interactions. Um, For example, I had a a colleague of mine who was my boss and became very protective of me um, and wanted to kind of give me a chance to grow professionally. And she, we got to a place where they were kind of laying off people and they wanted to lay me off because I was last one in, first one out. She gave up part of her salary to secure my staying put because she believed in the knowledge I had, the expertise, the work that we needed to do. And she did it without my knowledge. I only overheard it by chance because the boss was talking to her on the phone and I could hear from my office the conversation. And so there's sometimes those values that people carry shows you the, the best of who we are sometimes. And being able to be in that place made me feel like, oh, think about what that represents and how yeah. can I be that there for others in similar ways. So people give you ideas of how you can be a, a better person or... On the flip side, seeing behavior from others where I look at them and go, oh, I certainly don't want to be that kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always that sort of observation and just being curious Mm -hmm. and recognizing that there's so much creativity and so many different ways of being that it's enriching. It's just a way of growing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Constantly developing who I am.
1: Yeah. And I feel like it's it's a very positive way to um, cheat with self-development. Be, yeah. And you know, find someone who you already emulate, you 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 admire, you appreciate, and sometimes um, to help stretch ourselves, you know, I'll say to myself, you know, if I if I was that person, how would I act in this moment? Yeah. And sometimes it just makes the next step much easier than it would be if we were doing figuring it out our on our own.
2: Yeah, it, yeah. it's sort of free lessons. Yeah. Free training.
1: Yeah. 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 Rima, you. I'm curious to know, I want to dive more now into your coaching Mm -hmm. experience and background. And I know you have this great tagline, helping clients seek and find answers from within. What first attracted you to coaching?
2: Um, I've always been sort of the counselor for friends. People would come to me for advice, for helping them sort through their problems. And so um, they would For the longest time, colleagues, friends, family members would say, you'd be a great coach. Why don't you do coaching? And so, eventually, as I was getting ready to think about, well, what kind of um, retirement gig do I want to have? I'm not somebody who's going to sit and retire and twiddle my thumbs. I wanted something that would keep me engaged. And so, I thought, hmm, that might be a nice sort of way of um, staying engaged. And I'm I love working with people and being kind of a support to them. So I enrolled in Coach You and started doing it formally. And it was interesting because I loved uh, the growth that I went through through that process. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel like, well, one realization was oh, well, what I was doing was definitely not coaching in terms of the classical sense. Sure. It was a hybrid of coaching and and counseling and guiding. And I just loved that combination. And certainly the training and coaching taught me a lot of new skills I did not have. Um, And so now I'm at the stage where I'm trying to create my own hybrid because I really feel I belong in a world that's sort of more a combination of counseling, guiding, and coaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And really what I realized is that whenever I offered guidance, I always offered it as a Um, something to consider almost in a question form for people so never wanting to impose but rather offer a a kind of ideas and so for me it's all about needing to own something for it to be um, to be of value if we don't truly believe in something or if it doesn't really connect with who we are it's just it's as if you're donning on a scarf. You put it on, you take it off, it's not really you. And it doesn't last. So, that aspect of anchoring, helping people get to a place that's deeper knowledge of who they are or who and how to work with kind of developing who they want to be is really um, what really keeps me engaged in coaching or what triggers it for me.
1: And I'm curious um, if you have a couple of concrete examples of. You know, you focus on self-development for yourself, for your clients. What have some of the benefits been that you have seen from people?
2: So I had one client who came in uh, relatively young, by my assessment, not very, uh, has a strong desire to change, but not much self-awareness available to him Mm. at that point. Um, And so as we were working, uh, he had sort of challenges, emotional challenges around one topic. um, And I found that I was, as I was trying to have him sort of um, reflect deeper, kind of get awareness of when those emotional um, instances were triggered, he just didn't know how to even begin to look at it or figure it out. So I went into more of the counseling mode and sort of asking questions, giving ideas, one, kind of asking him if this was true or not, kind of just probing as we went along. And then try to create situations by modeling or uh, using the background that I had in psychology, uh, try to find distractions for him. So, for example, he would get into a mental loop where he couldn't get out of that sort of uh, um, what I would call uh, being trapped in that loop. I don't want to give away any of the information for privacy sure. sake, but he would get into that mental loop. And so little tricks, I gave him a little thinking putty, gave it to him. Got him Say to again, pick. a little thinking thinking putty it's a little putty that you can play with just like a thinking a, putty putty yeah like patamudle.
1: yeah like uh what is that the colorful
2: yes uh, kind of, sort of play-doh something similar yeah yeah okay so, something similar to play-doh gave it to him just got him to play with. it started having conversations and next thing he Realizes and, and, and then, you know, he's playing with it. Then we stop. And then I ask him a question to check in on his emotional state of mind. He goes, wow, I just disconnected from it. I said, what do you think happened? And he just couldn't figure it out. And I said, I distracted you with the Play-Doh or the thinking putty. And it broke the constant obsession over the same thought. And it was like, ah, so this was an external guidance to help him noticed something that was happening to him that he wasn't picking up. Mm -hmm. Work continued for several, several sessions. And finally, one day, out of through that whole process, he turns to me and goes, wow, I just realized something. I said, what is it? He goes, my fear of getting into that state is what gets me into that state. So if I'm aware of that fear, I can tell it, no, you're not going to push me there. That snapped it. That was the end of getting caught in that cycle, even though he knew he had the option of all along, he could take medication if he needed it, he could do. And we worked on a series of different strategies that will help create that distraction to break the cycle of that loop.
1: What were some of the other examples of distraction that you um, came up with?
2: Going out for a walk. So I would say Mm. what helps you kind of relax or, Mm. you know, break away or give yourself a chance to sort of step away from that emotional state he recognized that going outside and walking for a little while helps or standing on the balcony and and smoking a cigarette or um listening to some music just enough for five or ten minutes to sort of physically move him from the environment to another environment so the probing was all around what he used or found useful to him Um, gave him some other techniques, deep breathing, um, having, uh, making a phone call to a friend around some other topic. So we kind of played around with different strategies to kind of help make him feel he has different tools he can use in different situations, um, including where in, if he's in the middle of a meeting, can he step away? If he cannot, what can he do with his fingers underneath the table to break the cycle? So there were lots of different tricks and strategies, yeah. but... The understanding of how it was triggered was so key for him to be able to overcome it. The fear it yeah. generated with it so It reminds
1: me powerful it It reminds me a little bit of something my sister said recently about when we're having these negative emotions that you sort of it's like they're an unexpected house guest, and you just you' want to invite them in like, oh, you know you, you, by just acknowledging it, naming it, he mm-hmm. took it one step further he acknowledged it and put a limit no. Um, though sometimes it's just the awareness piece is, is sometimes such a, a key element. Yeah. So when you have clients who lack self-awareness, you explained with him you know, the approach you took. It, do you ever sometimes think this person's not coachable or is there, do you think there's something else underneath the surface that is creating that lack of self-awareness?
2: There are, I believe that there are some people who are not coachable. Mm -hmm. or at least at certain points in their, their, their their lives or in a certain situation are not coachable. Sure. And it's a question of readiness. Sometimes they do have a desire or they're curious, but
1: they're not really ready. Yeah. I think it's important to honor that. You know, you just made me think I was just on a call this afternoon with a client who I worked with him a year. Last time we worked together was a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. He had two hours remaining. He had never used. He canceled appointments finally yeah. today we spoke and I think he was feeling a mixture of disappointment maybe some I don't know shame or embarrassment mm-hmm. because he said Amy I've I feel like I've just slipped back maybe even be, you know before I prior to how I was with the coaching and, and I feel like I didn't benefit from all the coaching we did then it could have helped me so much in these scenarios that I was dealing with mm-hmm and then he said on his own, "Maybe this is a good thing." And I was like, "Okay." And you know, Amy, shut hmm. up! Keep your mouth shut! You know, tell me more. And um, and his he could see. And I, I shared that quote of when the enemy of the the enemy of the great is not the bad. The enemy of the great is the good. And I said, "You know, you're what I hear you just said to me was that maybe the fact that it's bad has, is motivating you to." Uh, do what you need to do to get out of that negative space um, and, and to be able to create the kind of relationships you want and how you want to be in the world. And yeah, so that was, that was really cool to see him go through that process on his own.
2: Yeah. Uh, these are, I think the most powerful because that self-awareness is what becomes the motivator and opens them up to be more receptive to even paying attention to their own blind spots or their own vulnerabilities.
1: Yeah. And I think yeah. that's
2: so important. And there is that, a gift to that. I think when when people are in an environment where they feel safe and they feel they're not really being judged, but accepted, they tend to uh, be gentler towards themselves as well.
1: So I want to ask you more about that because you've told me that people describe you as someone who shows up in a way that makes people feel safe, non judgmental, mm-hmm. and authentic. How would you coach someone to show up in this way?
2: It is being able to be... Um, accepting of who you are it does not change your desire to want to change and grow and be better but very early on um i would say probably when i turned 13 i, I became aware of the i was exposed or seeing the serenity uh quote god give me the wisdom to tell the difference you know
1: yeah, yeah let's fun. talk about that so uh, let me see if i can remember it god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change, change.
2: to change the, change the courage I can.
1: the courage to change the things i can okay. And the wisdom to know the difference
2: between the two. Yeah. There were different variations and I loved it so much. I actually wrote it on the back of my clipboard at at 13. At 13. I loved it. And it just sort of spoke to this whole, again, self-development, wanting to change. And it's really about understanding that we have a desire to change, but being accepting of the fact that sometimes we try and try and try and we just fail. And we can't change certain things. And if we can't change them, instead of beating ourselves up on it, accept it and move on. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of kindness to oneself is the space that allows that feeling of it's fine. It's fine to be who I am. It's fine to have the good side and the bad side. It doesn't mean that I approve of the things that that are kind of not so nice. But if I can um, call out myself on them, recognize them, that's already a big achievement. Mm -hmm. And so being in that space means that we're more likely to be willing to look at our own vulnerabilities and call them out.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And I came to understand that, again, um, as a teenager, boarding school with our, you know, made a very, very um, close connections with friends. And one of them is my best friend to this day. And she was the first person I was able to speak to her about my vulnerabilities, even to the point of exposing vulnerabilities that were I wasn't willing to tell myself about. It sort of pushed that far. And feeling that I could do that with her because it was safe. And that made me understand how important creating that space is. It wasn't a conscious understanding at the time. It just was just a feeling. And that carried with me. And as I kind of reflected on that and as I went through the years growing up and growing and kind of developing relationships and working through you know interactions with people I began to recognize the value of that sort of uh, when we're able to call our own vulnerabilities people can, cannot use them against us anymore and that's the place that makes us feel safer because what are we afraid of exposure ridicule yes
1: judgment okay so by proactively One, accept, you know, what you have and who you are and how you're being in the world, whether it's ideal or not, Mm -hmm. and then exposing that and sharing that with people. And, you know, it makes me think of Brene Brown and the power of vulnerability. Doing those things Mm -hmm. then can help you to um, be less judgmental and show and you're certainly being more authentic in the world. So that's one of the ways you help your clients to get there.
2: And get them to sort of call it out and see how, how they feel when they do that. Mm. And recognizing that not everybody is going to be um, as warm and supportive. But when you begin to accept yourself and care for yourself, then you've got that power that resides within you. So how do you keep your inner power versus handing it over to others? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and just creating the experience and how they feel and how it opens them up to be more creative and more willing to tackle the things that they want to tackle.
1: Uh-huh. Say that last part again, being willing to tackle
2: sort of the thing. things that they want to tackle. And yeah. I have one client who is very much about um, creating space to grow. And I would always challenge her. She would say, I am somebody who needs to control the outcome. And I would say, "Uh oh, you're going back into control again through playfulness, through laughter. Sure. And she goes, oh, you are right. I'm trying to control it again. So it's sort of mm. creating that, that caring, loving mirror. Mm-hmm. as your sister did with you.
1: Mm-hmm. Nice. So, Rima, we are just about out of time. Mm-hmm. And before I let you go, I'd like to ask you to share with listeners one call for action. What would that be?
2: I would say I'd invite the listeners, kind of use this week to play and experiment with two types of communication approaches. Uh, one in which you kind of get into an exchange with a clear agenda, like what do I want to get out of this exchange and the second where you go in with more of a detached sense towards the outcome and just reflect on the experience that you have and in, in kind of what did you discover and learn in each of those scenarios? Which approach offered greater enjoyment, enrichment and or satisfaction and why? Mm. I just having that experience helps us understand how we can empower communication to to be more of what we want it to be and more enriching rather than having the ego and the agenda be the pusher.
1: And this speaks directly to t- something, a topic we didn't get to dive into, which you and I both share equally, the power of being detached from the outcome. Yes. And people say to me, well, Amy, if I'm attached to the outcome, how, how do I get myself detached? And what I say to them, tell me what you think, is just by simply acknowledging that you're attached to with the, an outcome, a specific outcome, you become less attached. You, you, yeah. you're, you're just the, you know, it's kind of like you're waving the flag and admitting to it and it loosens it up a tiny bit.
2: Exactly. Very true. And mm. being able to recognize that by being detached, you will uh, be able to observe and get more out of it than you would otherwise.
1: Say that one more time. When you
2: when you detach from when it, you detach. You have, okay, when you detach, you have more yes. of an opportunity to be the observer and yes. take in more of the exchange and be enriched by it. Got
1: it. So, listeners, you can check, you can connect with Rima on her website, which I'll repeat again it's www.intoitcoaching.com and that's with the number two or into it at gmail.com. Now, my call for action is to send me your communication, conundrums, clashes, challenges, mishaps, blunders, and successes via email or through social media. And I will read them. I'll discuss them on future shows, make suggestions for you. Uh, My email is amy at carolcoaching.com. And that's two R's and two L's. Rima, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you. I loved it. Thank you so much. So listeners, if you're game for more, I'm going to be hopping over to Facebook Live five minutes past the hour for a short chat on today's call, on today's show, rather. Uh, Feel free to connect with me on my social media channels, Amy Carroll Coaching, my website, carolcoaching.com. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel. Be sure to tune in next week. And in the meantime, everyone, happy partnering.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Join Amy for another edition next Friday at 7 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Central European Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, make it a great week. And remember, make your partner look good.